is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We will pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we wish to thank you. We come here to show you glory. And we all realize that your son did come to this earth and die for us, but not strictly for us, but for you, so that we may be here to glorify you. For if it wasn't for him, we would still have that separation. But your God, your son came down and gave us that completeness so that we may be joined with you. He accepted the punishment that we could not. And we thank him today and every day that we are reconciled back to you and we may glorify you as we were made to do. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, uh, you know, c- contemporary music tends to have this um, uh, kind of negative thing, as they say, where you sing the same phrase over and over and over again. <laughs> and uh, I just want to say there are some phrases that are worth singing over and over again. Uh, in fact, the angels agree. Um, they sing holy, holy, holy over and over again. So uh, we don't tend to sing phrases over and over again, but for the honor um, and uh, forever, uh, we will honor you. And just want to encourage you that in our lives, like we should seek to honor God. It should be a priority for us to honor God with our lives and not bring disgrace and shame uh, from the sin in our lives and so on and so forth. So um, with that said, I hope you all have your Bibles. If you do, uh, we're in Colossians and we are in week two of our study through the book of Colossians. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, it'll the text as we read through them and the fill in the blanks will be up on the screen. I want to encourage you uh, to take good notes. Uh, for some of you who are visiting today, um, I, I preach a long time, okay? Uh, so if someone, if your friend that brought you didn't tell you to bring a pad for the horribly hard chairs, I apologize for them. Uh, we put the cushion on the floor instead of on the seats. Uh, unless you're in the very, very back, then you're out of luck. So, uh, anyways, we're going to preach through Colossians, and we're going to work through verses 15 through 20 today. Uh, 15 through 20 is very thick. Uh, it is pretty much 100% accepted that this portion of Colossians is actually a hymn. Uh, and actually, more, more specifically, it is probably a hymn that Paul took during this time and then adapted to uh, the church in Colossae and in his writing. And so the majestic writing that I think we see here in these next verses is awesome. Um, It's one of the greatest passages describing our Savior. 
Uh, it is powerful. It is thick. There is lots of meaning here. So we're we're going to try and tackle this today, and I hope uh, you listen quickly. Um, I'm going to try and talk quickly, and we're going to try and work through this. Uh, one thing I think we see right off the bat here, I think we see a tension in the book of Colossians. And we see a tension between this one that God called, that, that, God, that Christ, or sorry, that from your notes there, we see this tension. It says that Christ, as the preeminent one, is sent as the humbled, willing Lamb to be slaughtered. There you're going. Right, well, what? I, okay, what's that mean? I what, that don't mean. I don't know what preeminent means. Well, let's talk about that. Scripture calls Christ the preeminent one because He is the preeminent one. But preeminent basically means the one who is is in prominence, is the one who is supreme, the one who is most important, the one from whom. From whom and to whom all things flow. The one of whom the angels cannot stop singing. The one of whom the world serves as his footstool. The preeminent one. The one of prominence. The one of supreme importance. This is Christ. And then scripture. And we see this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The firstborn. It's talking about his preeminence. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's above all things, and in him all things hold together. But at the same time, Scripture calls Christ the Lamb led to the slaughter. Calls him the stricken one. The one who carried the sorrows of others. The, he was the crushed one. He was the wounded one. He was the oppressed one. And it was the will of God to crush him. It was the will of God. It wasn't God. God did not go and look at the cross and go, Oh, well, I better make the best I can of this. It was God's good pleasure for Calvary to come in, in precise detail the way it did. Let's read Isaiah chapter 53. I think gives one of the greatest explanations or descriptions of Christ and the cross. Starting in verse 4. So surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has said, laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had, no, had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see this offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And I just want to pose the question today. How is it that the one who is prominent, the one whom all creation exists to worship, is the one whom God was pleased to stricken? And to thrust the payment due our sins upon his back. How? Let's read one more time. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 20. And let's work through this text together. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Today it's going to be kind of broken up into two sections. First section is verses 15, 16, 17, and the latter section is verses 18, 19, 20. Probably could be separate sermons or multiple sermons, uh, but we're going to work through it today um, as I think it kind of encapsulates the, the overall picture. And then we may take the next couple weeks and dig in a little bit deeper in these passages. We'll have to see what, what God has in store. But first of all, what we see here is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Oh, what is Paul talking about here? First of all, know Jesus and you will know God. That's the first thing that Paul is saying here in this passage. Know Jesus and you will know God. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. So let's talk about this for just a moment. The ex- explaining this, the Greek philosophy tells us, if you study some Greek philosophy, that the image has, the, the word image in this passage has a share in the reality that it reveals and may be said to be the reality. Now, today when we think of an image, we think of pictures. Like, well, or we think of drawings or something like that, or sculptures. And so, like, like we went and did some pictures with Chapman last week, uh, which was a lot of fun. Not really. Because he was like, didn't want nothing to do with it. Okay, He was happy when he had grapes in his mouth, but those don't make good pictures. Uh, and so he just wanted to run. And so eventually we're like, we just told the photographer, look, just follow him. Uh, because, you know, like, like as a parent, you can make them sit there, but then they're going to cry. And we're there for pictures. <laughs> so uh, we got a lot of his serious face, you know, because he's a very serious kid for the most part. But uh, we just started following. But she took these pictures, and some of you have seen them on Facebook. But um, those are just, those are images. Like we think of images, uh, we think of pictures. Uh, that's not the exact idea that Scripture has in mind here. But I want to say this again because I think this, this explanation really helps us. And that is the image has a share 
in the reality that it reveals and may be said to be the reality. So when, Jesus, when, when Paul is talking about Christ as the image, he's, he's talking about how Christ as the image, basically that the image contains within it at least in part the object that it is an image of. Not simply a representation of or something completely different that when we look at it, okay, well, that just shows us what God looks like. No, he, the idea of image is that it at least contains within itself part of the reality or part of the actual thing that it is representing. An image during this time period was not considered something distinct from the object that it represented. So pictures of our family, those are distinct. Those are their own thing and there is no reality of who I am in that picture other than just what I look like. It does not contain my personality. It doesn't contain my power. It doesn't contain my speech, my communication, my intellect, my love. None of that is contained within that picture. It's just a representation. But image during this time period is much more than just a representation. In fact, Christ is, if we understand this correctly, then Christ is an exact as well as a visible representation of God, illuminating God's essence. The very essence of God. When Paul is saying that Christ is the image of God, he's saying that Christ is the essence of God. He is God, essentially, is what Paul is saying. He is God. He's the image of God. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, this passage has lots of application beyond what we're talking about today. But from the very beginning, and, 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 and I, I want to give you a little tidbit that if you want to take this back and research this a little bit as you study this passage this week. Um, there's some, I think, some tradition in the word for wisdom and the word word in Scripture that's really playing into this. So, um, you know, if you look at some of the old Jewish wisdom literature, uh, particularly the book of wisdom, you see their use of the word wisdom and word. And, and I think that really helps us. But we don't have time to dive into all of that. But I just want to encourage you um, to take a look, if, if you can, this week and, and study some of that. Because it really, I think, helps undergird some of what Paul is talking about here. But what we see, though, is that Christ brings clarity. Christ brings clarity to our immortal and invisible God. No one has ever seen God, John tells us. So in Christ, we see who God is. When Paul says he's the image, we see who God is. We see that God is our creator, that God is our redeemer. In Christ, we see what God is like. He's merciful. He's loving. Among many other things, in Christ, we also see what God does. How he sends his son to rescue people. He sends his son to bring justice and mercy to our world. John Calvin said, I think he said it best in talking about how Christ shows us God. He, he says that Christ shows us his righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, and in short, his entire self. His entire self. Christ shows us God. 
So, if we want to know what God looks like, and, and if you were here last week, we talked about the importance of behavioral management versus knowing and abiding in the will and knowledge of God and how that's where we need to be. It's not behavioral management, but it, and we, we work through and know God's will. So if we're going to know God and abide in God, we look to Christ who shows us who God is, what he looks like. What God looks like, what God's tone is, how God responds. When we look at Christ, first of all, we see God, and these are just, just three small examples, but we see, first of all, that God is merciful. We see that in Jesus. We see that God is merciful. He's a merciful God. Mercy involves bringing relief to someone from something unpleasant. All of us, and maybe even some of us here today, all of us at some point, we're facing something very unpleasant. We're facing hell. And we see the mercy of God exercised and displayed in the person of Christ. Next, we see that God is compassionate. There's a fancy word we like to use when it comes to the work of Christ on the cross. It's called propitiation. Basically, it means the, the appeasing of God, to, to satisfy, to absorb the wrath of of God. And so when we say Christ is our propitiation, we mean that Christ absorbed the wrath of God. And in that, I believe we see compassion. We see concern of God for his people. We see Christ with this concern for us in the cross. Now, let me say this, you know, uh, I, I liked what Dr. Platt said on Friday night. He brought up the uh, the old idea, well, what did Christ have on his mind? He had me on his mind as he went to the cross. And although there might be a smidgen of truth to that, he primarily had God on his mind when he went to the cross. He had the glory of God was his greatest concern on the cross. Um, and then we benefit greatly from that. But let me say this, though. Christ, though, still shows compassion. And we see the compassion of God and the work of Christ. We also see that God is all-powerful. There's another uh, unique word that we like to use when we talk about the cross and, and, and the work of Christ, and that's the word expiation. And basically expiation is the idea of making amends for guilt. Or another word we use that is atonement, making amends for guilt. And so in the depth of our sin, we required an infinitely great atonement, right? So each of us, all of us, myself included, one little sin is an infinitely great sin against an infinitely holy God, requiring an infinite atonement, an infinite sacrifice. And I believe one of the greatest displays of power is not in the creation of this earth, but is in, it is in Christ making atonement for our sins. So we see the power of God in Christ. If we want to see that God is merciful, we look at Christ. We see that God is compassion. We look at Christ. We see Jesus is all-powerful. He is the image of God. And so next, we see not only is that if we know Jesus and you, we will know God, and we read on in that passage, it says he's the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn. So we just talked about his image. What's Paul mean there? We look at Christ, we see God. Next, he's the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the supreme ruler of creation, including your life. Including your life. Christ as the preeminent one, as the one with prominence, carries supreme ruling with his position. He's the firstborn. He's the prominent one. Um, uh, it's interesting here at this passage, if you study, you study a little bit of history, um, this passage, I think, is, is often, or, or can be, and definitely has in the past, been confused with saying that Christ was a created being. He's the, it says the firstborn of all creation. So does that mean he was the first one created? Some, some uh, religious groups believe that today. Um, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, they, they are known for this belief. Um, uh, there's a group of Catholicism that holds to this belief as well. It's a very small group of, of very, very, very small group of Catholics that hold to this belief that Christ was, um, uh, that he was the first one created. Um, there is a famous uh, theologian, his name is Arian. And Arian in the fourth century, basically, he is the one that kind of pushed this idea. I don't think he was the one it originated with. Uh, but he kind of pushed this idea to the point where the church had to say, all right, we need to take some time and study through this. What does this mean? And that's where we have what's called the Council of Nicaea, where basically the church fathers get together and they, they took a look at this in the 4th century, 5th century, and said, what is it that Scripture's teaching here? Um, just some little fun information. I'm a little bit of a theology nerd. But uh, this is where we have the term called, uh, and some of you will be like, dude, you're just... Just hush and go on. But I love this term. I just kind of like saying it. Homo usius, okay? Like, isn't that a cool, like everybody say, homo usius. Homo usius. There you go. Very good. You all sound like, like theologians, right? So homo usius basically means that Christ is the essence of the Father. That he was not made, but he is of one being with the Father. Uh, and, but you're saying, well, okay, well, that's cool. Some old dudes back in the 4th century decided this. How do we know this today? Like, how, how do we know this? How, how can we believe this? First of all, you, if you look at the word firstborn, it's used 130 times in the Septuagint. And it's always used to describe status of power. Always. 130. That's pretty good odds, okay? Uh, so we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's our primary goal and a uh, primary tool in understanding Scripture. So if it's used 130 times, that's a pretty good start for us. But f- next, I want to ex- explain something. The word, uh, I can't pronounce it, but the Greek word protokos, prototokos, uh, I'm terrible at pronouncing Greek. But basically, the word for firstborn takes on a metaphorical significance based on the ancient attri- attribution attribution, sorry, of preeminence to the first to be born. All right, so you're going, all right, dude, you're like, what are you saying here, all right? 
What I'm saying here in this explanation is simply this, is that firstborn is an issue of prominence, not an issue of when they were born into this world. Although, when they were born into this world has a lot to do with the prominence. Does that make sense? So, in the Old Testament, we study the Old Testament, we look at the firstborn. Traditionally, the firstborn was the child with prominence was the child with preeminence. He was the one who got all the inheritance. He was the one that was looked at in authority over the family. Uh, that's not a typical tradition that we follow today. I'm not saying that we should. Um, but in helping us understand firstborn, firstborn is not an issue of when they came out of mommy's womb. It's an issue of, of importance and prominence. So, you're saying, okay, well, I, I still don't believe it. All right. Well, Israel is called God's firstborn in Exodus 4, 22. Now, is Jesus saying that Israel was the first ones to be born? Like they came out of mommy's womb like first? No. There was lots of people around before the nation of Israel was established. But he calls them his firstborn. David is said to be God's firstborn among the kings in Psalm 89, verse 27. Now, was, Jesus, was, was David the firstborn? Was he the one to be created first? No. But, and then he says he's firstborn among the kings. That's the context. Firstborn among, what does kings represent? Authority, power, importance. And he's the firstborn among them. And this is particularly important in order to understand Colossians 1.15 because of the messianic and kingly terms that we see used in verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 1, if you look at that this week as well, uses the term firstborn as a Christological titlement in a messianic context. So in the context of Hebrews 1, he's, it's, it's talking about the Messiah. And he uses this Christ title as firstborn to describe him in the context of the power, the position as the Messiah. It's a conclusion. I think it's very, very clear that the firstborn should be understood in a sense of supreme over or supreme power over prominence. He's the one with the authority. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the one who is supreme over all creation. All right, we tracking? Everybody tracking with me? Okay, shake your head. Okay, we're, we're going. Schweitzer, he's a, he's a famous Colossian uh, uh, commentator. He says that Christ is the acting subject who extends God's activity to the creatures that follow him. So he extends God's, God's prominence, God's authority. And Paul, I believe, asserts Christ. Now, I don't want to sound like we're so picky about little words, but little words are so important, okay? Paul, I think, is asserting Christ's primacy over creation and not just within creation. I think that's important for it to understand. So it's not Christ is the most important one among us. He's the most important one over us. It's, a, it's an important distinction because Christ was not created. He's always been in existence. And this is so crucial to the cross, to our life today. 
But he is supreme over all of creation, not just within creation. So, why then? The question is this. Why Christ is preeminent over all creation? And I think Paul explains that to us in these next couple texts. So, this is what we've done so far. He's the image of God. And he is the most important one. He is the supreme ruler. So, why is he the supreme ruler over all creation? And Paul says, because all things were created in because all things are created. This is crucial for us understanding the, even the very, just to understand Easter and the atonement and what happens on the cross and in the resurrection. Colossians 1.16. I love this. He says, For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So, what we have here is Paul is telling us why he's preeminent, at least in part, why he is preeminent, and why he is the most important. He gives us three prepositional phrases. All right? I'm not a good English person, but I'm actually probably better at other languages than English. But I know what a preposition is, and prepositions he is talking about here is in, through, and for. And these are the prepositional phrases that we see in this passage. The first one being, by him... All things were created. You see that there in verse 16? It says, For by him all things were created. Now, I think that's a correct translation. I don't think it's the best translation. By him. So, meaning he's the instrument of creation, is what by him portrays to us or relays to us. But what's interesting then is if that's, the, if that's correct, that Paul is saying by him and the fact that he's the instrument of the one doing creation, then he repeats himself when he says that through Christ he created all things. So for that reason, I don't think that by him is the best translation there, but I think what's better is better understood as in, excuse me, uh, translated as in him. Basically referring to lose my voice. There we go. Basically referring to like the sphere. That's another fun word to say. Sphere, right? So when Paul's talking about here, he's talking about, I believe what's best understood here is that in Christ, all things were created. Like within the sphere of who Christ, and I don't know what all that means, okay? But I think it's a better understanding, not just by him, because Paul says that again. But then also, there's 13 other times that Paul uses this same phrase, and it's always in the book of Colossians alone, and it's always referring to the sphere of what's going on, of what's happening, within the sphere of who Christ is. So, all things are created in Christ, within the sphere of who Christ is. And then he says all things were created through him. Now this is instrument, meaning he's the one's create. God is creating through the person of Christ. Through him. And all things were created for him. All things were created for him. Now, if all things in this world were created in you, created by you, and created for you, do you think that that sets you as the prominent one, right? Like if I create this whole world, I am the most important one. I am the supreme one. I am 
the prominent one. Absolutely. So Paul gives us a reason for why Christ is most important. All things were created in him, but then all things includes things in heaven and on earth. In heaven and on earth is what he tells us next. I think what happens is this list serves basically to accent Christ's all-encompassing role in creation. Like this list basically just accents and says, here is the splendor of Christ, the preeminent one, the most important one. It's interesting, heaven during this period was not thought of as some like distant place with no bearing on today. Like we tend to think of heaven as, well, that's a place I'm going to get to. A heaven usage in this passage does not refer to just some distant thought of place. But instead, it was basically invisible powers that were exerting their influence for good or ill. Like heavenly powers, heavenly people. You know, Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over, his pre- over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I think what Paul is saying, that whether good or bad, weak or strong, Christ has majesty and power over all of them. And they, all of these things, like everything else, was created by him and for him. Even Satan himself was created by God for God. Now I won't have time to get into that and hope, hope you don't let that distract you, but he created Satan. Satan, and what happens is underneath God's control, every bit of it, and it happens for God's glory. So, Paul tells us that he's preeminent because all things are created in him and all things, including things in heaven on earth. And the next, the universe finds, Paul says, finds its cohesion in Christ. The universe finds its cohesion in Christ. Again, reason for preeminence. The most important one. The prominent one. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ has precedence over all things in terms of time and status. In time and Status. He was before all things. This is the eternality of Christ. Uh, basically, he's like divine. Uh, this is a very weak description of what's going on here, but this has a basis for us. He's like divine glue that holds the universe together. Like the very particles that make up these chairs and the neutrons and electrons and, and all that. God is the one that holds those. Christ, specifically, is the one that holds all of those together. Christ continues to hold all things together. Like, God is not, I and mean, this is what Paul is talking about, God's not this God that just created and then set things into motion and he sits back and watches. But without Christ, everything would fall apart. Like, literally, the chair would fall apart. He says that Christ holds all things together. And all means all. It's not all things except for those things that are already together. No, he holds all things together. Like, everything. Um, 
a Angel or uh, Anglican theologian, his name is Hanley Mule, says he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. He keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. But here's the deal: Christ is more than just the agent holding things together. Because if all he was was the thing holding things together, then that would mean that things have some sort of existence outside of Christ. And this is important. So things do not, none of us have existence apart from Christ. And then Christ just holds us together. No, we find our existence in Christ as well as what holds us together in Christ. He's before all things. Um, you know what's interesting, I think, is that this would have been like loony talk during this day. And I think it's still, to some of us, loony talk today. Right? doesn't mean it's not truth. But imagine what's going on. I mean, Paul, we're talking days, you know, years after this man walks the earth, he dies, and supposedly resurrects. And so, I mean, Paul says that that dude, that guy holds all things together. Now, we're kind of distanced out from that. So we see Christ as this great historical figure. Uh, we should see him as Lord, but some of us at the very least see him as a great historical figure so we can think, okay, well, within that religion, that might be possible for him to hold all things. I'm sure they believe that. That's fine. That's cool for them. For during this period, Paul's saying, that guy that your grandma saw, that your mom saw, he holds all things together. The one who had been crucified by the Romans holds all things together. You know, perhaps the Colossians in this day were seeking to find cohesion for the universe through other religions. I think part of what Paul's doing here is trying to fight some syncretism that's going on. Syncretism is the idea of taking some of this religion and this religion and kind of combining them together. And I think Paul, part of what Paul's doing here is trying to say, look, Colossians, don't go find, you can't find that cohesion to explain this part of your life in that religion there. You can't find this, the, the thing to explain that struggle in your marriage over here or the thing that holds the world together. You can't explain that from this religion over here. You can't go grab something from there and pull it in to Christ. It's Christ and it's Christ alone. And today, we do the same thing. We try to take, well, it's my good behavior plus Jesus that gets me to heaven. Or it's my baptism plus Jesus that gets me to heaven. And Paul fights, I, I think, just without stop against this idea that it is anything else plus Christ. It's not. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's him who hung alone on the cross, not your baptism, not the things uh, that make you a good person. Those things are not up on the cross. Those are filthy rags compared to Christ's righteousness. So, Christ is the preeminent one. He's the firstborn over all creation. And he is the one with infinitely, who will inf with infinite supreme rule. He created all and he sustains all creation. And Christ's preeminence is displayed in relation to the creation. Like we see it displayed through the creation. What's really awesome in this passage is Paul doesn't leave us at some like heavenly abstraction 
of this, you know, awesome King Jesus. But I think what he does, he brings it down to earth. In fact, I think he brings it down, and you'll see in a few moments, to a man hanging on a cross where blood flowed. It's what we see, Paul. Back to the tension. Christ, the supreme creator and sustainer of all things, is the crucified and resurrected Lord. That's awesome. It's Christ establishes his lordship in house churches, prison cells, families. And Christ reveals more of the ultimate aims of this invisible God. And next we see the head of the church going on verses 18 through 20. We see the head of the church, the firstborn from among the dead. Now that's a weird phrase. Like firstborn from among the dead. Like this just sounds crazy. So we're, we're going to work through this as well. First of all, we see that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says, And he is the head of the body, the church. Um, it's not uncommon during this time period to compare the cosmos to a body. Like that was a common phrasing and, and ideal during that time. And Paul applies it to the church. Talking about the church being a body and Christ being the head. But what's awesome here is that Paul's tying them together, tying uh, the cosmos or creation to the church. When he does that, he ties the destinies of the church and creation together. And God's purpose, and here's the key, God's purpose for all of creation finds life in the church's community. So God's purpose specifically God's redemptive purpose redeeming creation back to himself finds life within the body that's crucial we as the body for lack of a better example we have the medicine now that doesn't mean that Everybody outside of this church is sick and we're all good, right? That's not what that means. We were all sick as well, right? And we still struggle with that sickness. The fact is we have Christ. And God's redemption plan, the plan, the purpose to take this, when Paul ties Christ to the cosmos or the body to the cosmos, we have the same purpose in this to take God's redemptive plan. As Christ is our head. The church exists to carry the gospel and God's plan of redemption to the world. So, we ask the question, why Christ is the head of the church? Why is he the head of the church? First of all, Christ is the beginning and the firstborn among from the or firstborn from the dead. Now, that's a weird, I, I have to admit, when I first read that, you know, However many years ago, I'm going, that's weird. And then when I read it like a few weeks ago, I'm going, that's weird. Um, What is he talking about? Firstborn from among the dead. So first of all, let's read that. Colossians 1 verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I think what happens is the poem here that we're, this hymn that we're reading moves from creation to a new creation by identifying Christ as the firstborn from among the dead. So he's going from an old creation to a new creation because we are a part, as believers, of a new 
creation. And what happens, I'm going to keep this kind of short, but Christ's resurrection is a source of new life for us. All right, so we are the, were the dead. Make sense? We were the dead. Because of the resurrection, that basically, if you will, initiates our resurrection. So it's kind, of, it's kind of a hard thing to explain, but basically those of us who are followers of Christ will one day resurrect to be with him, to be eternally with God. And so this resurrection of Christ is kind of like the inauguration of that of what's to come. But then there's also, and again, again, this is hard to explain, but there's also a reality in which some of this is true now. It's what Paul, what we refer to with Paul as, as the, uh, what's happened but yet not, not yet happened. It's, it's, there is a future reality to this that in part takes place now when we as dead sinners are resurrected in Christ. Our souls are resurrected, if you will. So basically, the dead is referring to the future end-time resurrection of those who are in Christ. So he's the firstborn among those who will resurrect with him someday. So Christ, he, we call him what, we, Adam in the garden, then there's the second Adam. So Adam is the, is the leader of the human race, and then Christ is the new Adam. The, I'm still connected to this, sorry, distraction. Um, I'm going to trip over that. So Adam is connected to, uh, first Adam is the leader of the human race. We see that in the garden. And then, and then Christ is seen as the, the second Adam. Well, as the second Adam, he's the firstborn among us. He establishes this race at the cross and at the resurrection. So he is the supreme one and the founder of the resurrection. That will be realized by all who are in Christ. And basically what Paul is saying is that Christ's resurrection signals the resurrection that we will experience someday. So why is Christ the head of the church? Because he is the firstborn among those who will be saved, those who will be resurrected. Wow. All right, next, Christ. Why is Christ the head of the church? Because Christ is the fullness of God. It's the fullness of God. This is who we celebrate today. He resurrected. He's the fullness of God. Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Christ differs from all other supposed divine reflections or divine things in this world. Because he is the full embodiment of God. You see, in the Old Testament, God chose to dwell, and chose for his name to dwell in certain places like the temple and the Holy of Holies. Isaiah 6 and Jeremiah 23 also talks about how God also fills the heavens and the earth. And Paul tells us that God is pleased to dwell in Fully and permanently in Christ. This is his place. Another great commentator on Colossians says, 
His name's F.F. Bruce. He says, all the attributes and activities of God, the Spirit, Word, wisdom, and glory, are disclosed in Him, are disclosed in Christ. All the attributes and activities of God. So Christ is the fullness of God. I mean, that has lots of implications for that. That's what that means all the power of God is in Christ. Of course, we know then later on that all of that has been done for the church. The fullness of God is in Christ. All the power of Christ is then given to the church. So, first, or that Christ is the fullness of God. Next, Christ is the one who reconciles all creation through his death. Colossians 1, and we're moving right along. Verse 20. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's go back to verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And basically you see kind of a repetition of this three prepositions in him, through him, to him. So in the beginning, God created all things through Christ. In the end, God will reconcile all things through Christ. So in the beginning, God displays the preeminence of Christ and the act of creation and sustaining. And then in the end, God will reconcile all things through the crushing of the preeminent one. The prominent one. You know, it's, it's in the cross. It's in God's love that we see the majesty of Christ. And we see that displayed in the historical reality of the cross. His majesty. Who he is. Displayed for us. The cross. The supreme one who took on flesh of his creation, took on the flesh of his creation. So we see Christ's work in creation. Christ's prominence in creation was displayed in his act of creating. And then we see sin defaces this glorious work. But then Christ came to undo the consequences of that defacing. Of the marring of his creation. Christ comes again. First he came and first he created. Then it's got messed up by us. Then he comes again to restore it. To undo its consequences. He came to restore the beauty of all things. To reflect it. To reflect what it originally was created for. I just think it's so beautiful. We see here Paul's reference to Christ's blood and his cross. And the cross. This is where Christ, the fullness of God, the splendor of the King, the Supreme One, humbles himself to the suffering of human pain. The head of the church, the one who was shamefully crucified. And we see the blood. Christ's work on the cross atoned for the sins of those who defaced and still defaced the display of his preeminence. So defacing the glory, the, the creation and the sin in our lives, he came and, 
His cross atones or pays the price for that sin. God took the blood of Christ and poured it on top of our hearts. Um, The heart is described as the mercy seat of our soul. If you understand the Old Testament, at least part of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, there's it's called the mercy seat. And what happened is the priest would go in and, would, and had a certain order and certain things that had to happen, but ultimately would pour blood over top of the mercy seat. And then what the, the picture there is then as God looks down at the sins of the people, he looks through the blood, the blood of the sacrifice. Of course, that was a temporary sacrifice. And then through his work on the cross, God is able to look at us through the blood of his son. So when he sees our sin, he sees it covered with the blood. He sees it paid for with the blood of his son. So on the cross, God did not only take the spotless, innocent lamb that we think of, it goes to the cross, but God sends the one who is in prominence, the one who is supreme, the one who is most important, the one from whom and to whom all things flow, the one of whom the angels cannot stop singing, the one whom all the world serves as his footstool. He sends him and made him the stricken one, the one who carried the sorrows of others, the one who was crushed, the one who was wounded, the one who was oppressed. And it was the will of God to do so. I think the tension we see is resolved in the fact that the only one capable to take the place of even one person, like understand this, even one person, if God chose to reconcile to himself one person, the atonement necessary was an infinite atonement that could only be made by God. the preeminent one. And so through Christ, he takes the place of just, even just one person's infinitely great sin. And through that, we can be reconciled to God. It's the preeminent one, is the only one possible to pay the atonement for our sin. So the question is, what, what do we do in light of these truths? So the, this, this is like some deep stuff. And, and I hope you go back this week and chew on some things and, and, and study and ask God to help you understand and some different parts. here. But what do we do in light of these truths? If it is true, first one, it is true, if it is true that we are sanctified through growing in the knowledge of his will, then we have nowhere to turn but Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, and he contains within himself the reality of what otherwise is invisible. We are not left to guess what God looks like. So, here's the deal. If we must know who God is, and if we are to have an abiding, thriving knowledge of the author of the universe of God, All we got to do is look to Christ. 
Like God doesn't just sit up there and go, oh, I hope they can figure out what I look like. But he sits, he sits, however you want. He's there and he says, I'm going to send my son so that there's no question. We see Jesus, we see God. We see Jesus, we see what we were meant to be. Not God's, but being like Christ. So what do we do in light of this truth? Behold his face even now, even with the distractions of this world, until one day you can behold his face without the distractions. Christian, behold his face now. The image of the invisible God. Next, if it is true that Christ, that Christ is the preeminent one, then we should worship him as such. If it is true that Christ is the preeminent one, then we should worship him as such. If he is prominent, then he takes priority. His commands, his desires, his plans, his discomfort, his suffering take priority in our lives. He becomes the central focus of the room. Does it make sense? Like in your life, if he's the preeminent one, then it should be reflected in your life. And yet somehow we somehow mosey ourselves into the central focus of the room. If Christ is the resurrected preeminent one, then we can rest in God's complete satisfaction in the atoning work of his son. If it's the resurrected preeminent one, then we can rest in God's complete satisfaction. We can rest in the assurance of his work. We can approach the throne room with confidence and we can boldly proclaim the finished work of Christ. This is our God. This is the one that we celebrate the resurrection day for. This is our God. This is our Christ. This is the one who died on Friday and rose again on Sunday. He wasn't just some man. He wasn't just some good idea. He's the supreme one. God's perfect one. He is God. And so it's, I think it's good for us to see the distinction, see Christ coming to earth, but also realize it's God coming to earth and dying on the cross to restore us to himself. And we see that carried out in the work of Christ. And then we see him resurrected on the third day. And what's he doing now? He is intercessing on our behalf. He is sustaining the universe. He is the head of the new creation. He is the face of which we are to behold. So the second one I said on here is, if it is true that Christ was the preeminent one, and we should worship him as such. And, and I just want to encourage you that if, I don't care what church you go to, I don't care what prayer you might have prayed, 
don't care what aisle you walked or what church you're a member of or if you've ever been baptized. I want to ask Bailey two questions today. The first one is, have you repented of your sin? And when we repent, what happens is we turn from what was darkness and dreadful and sinful, and we have to turn, and we have to turn to something. See, this world, what we do is we turn from bad things all the time, but then we turn to other things that we think are good, and they might be good, but they're not God. And so when we repent, the, the Bible says we repent and we move towards God. We turn to Christ. And the second question I asked her was, have you asked Christ to be your Lord? To be your supreme one. To be the preeminent one in your life. To be the one to whom you defer all decisions to. So I pose the same questions to you today. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. Maybe, maybe you're still trying to decide. I just want to encourage you to think through those questions. Have you sought after repentance from the only one who can grant repentance? It's the one that we celebrate today. And then have you placed your faith in him as the Lord of your life? Put your trust in him, your belief in him. And I just want to encourage you that if you've not done that, we're going to sing a song here in a second. You just close your eyes and talk to God yourself. Uh, just tell him, God, I am sorry for the sins that I've done. I repent, and I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be Lord of my life. And then I want to encourage you after that to find, after the service ends, to find Rusty or myself or anyone around here can point you to someone who can talk to you about that decision. It's too important. It's too important. So I want to pray for us. We're going to worship uh, in response to this text. I want us to worship and sing this next song uh, in light of the words of which we have just talked about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Resurrection Day, Father, for the, the opportunity to be reminded at least once a year of what you did on the cross, what you did to save us, and Father, what you did as a stamp of approval and resurrecting your Son Father, where he defeated death, where he defeated sin, he defeated the grave. Father, where you said, this is my son. This is my son whom I'm pleased. Father, help us to not get distracted with the things going on around us in this life that we would keep our eyes focused on the cross. Or that we would make you in our lives practically the prominent one. 
the one who's most important. Father, in these next few moments, just if there is anyone that doesn't know who you are, knows who you are, but has not been saved by your grace, Father, I pray that you would draw them in these moments, that you would open their hearts to the gospel, that you would draw them in a way that they cannot resist. And Father, we give you the praise for it. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.